I'm Terry Eagle, and I'm the Small Groups Director at Gateway, and this is Andy Almaguer, and we are excited this morning to bring you a small group story that I think illustrates what Ed was talking about last week when he was talking about focusing on key relationships in our lives. I'd like to let you get to know Andy a little bit. Andy, tell us what your favorite things to do are. Um, I like to kayak, fish, and uh, hike on the Appalachian Trail. Okay. That's pretty there you go. <laughs> With group people. <laughs> and how long have you been coming to Gateway? I think I've been here since about 2002. Okay. And you've been a part of small groups since then? Well, I started small group before I started the church. <laughs> okay. And how long have you been coming to the small group that you're actually in right now? Uh, five years, six years. Okay. And what small group is that? Uh, the Morgans. And... What sorts of things do you guys do in that group right now that you enjoy doing? Fish, hike, and... (laughs) (laughs) It's Uh, set out just for him. (laughs) We we eat a lot. Uh, I do. We help people move. Uh, We do a lot of uh, service. There was a story that Andy told me recently that thing that happened in his life that his group just rallied around him, and I'd like him to share that with you right now. Why don't you tell us what happened that really touched your heart? October 7th, I lost my father. He died. And I had a, we had a service in Texas and then um, another service at Arlington Cemetery. So I was keeping in touch with the group, you know, through email as well. I was, and, you know, telling them what the date, because Arlington is waiting on a certain date. So we finally got the date, and uh, Mark and Rachel said they were going to come. So uh, it was a Thursday before Thanksgiving cold and rainy, and all of them showed up, <laughs> my whole group. You just looked up and they were there. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that's a lot, take a day off work, and, you know, uh, the greatest gift you can give someone is your time. So, that's, you hear the depth in those relationships? That's what we're looking for in these small groups. And so those are the key relationships. That's what we're looking for in our lives in these small groups. So I'll turn it over to Alex now as we move on. Thank you, Andy. Hey, we're glad you're here, especially if this is your first time. Welcome to Gateway. My name is Alex York. I'm the associate pastor. And this morning, I'm going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. So Terry and Andy did a great job. I thought that was like a, a perfect snapshot of last week's message. Ed started a new series called Plugging In to Key Relationships. And the starting point was the idea of investing in Christian community because if we're wanting to grow as followers of Jesus, then we've got to be around other people that are heading in the same direction, that can spur us on, that can encourage us, that can help us stay on pace. And this morning, we're going to kind of aim in a slightly different direction when we talk about key relationships, but we're going to start with an encounter between Jesus and a religious expert. It was the same encounter that Ed started with last week. But instead of looking at Matthew's account of it, and we're going to look at Luke's biography, and I I want you to kind of follow along with me on the screen. I'll read this. This is a passage that uh, should be familiar to us if you were awake last week, but it's also a passage that's pretty well known to people who are completely disinterested in God. People all over the world know about this passage, and we refer to it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. But this is how it starts. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. 
Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this religious expert is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and it says he was testing Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi. His reputation was fairly well known. But this religious guy who had spent his whole life studying the Jewish law was kind of, you know, having a conversation with Jesus. I don't know that it was a, a verbal sparring match or anything like that. It was kind of a respectful dialogue, just sort of trying to test Jesus and feel out where he was coming from. And this religious expert basically in answer to Jesus' question is saying, okay, so the most important thing is we love God and we love people. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. If you do this, you'll have eternal life, not because you're such a good person or because you're so smart or so religious, but because if you understand about a relationship with God and you nurture that relationship with God, then it's going to show up in the way that you love the people around you. But the story goes on. But he wanted to justify himself, this religious expert. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He says he wanted to justify himself. You know, he wanted to look good. He wanted to make sure everybody that was listening knew, hey, I'm on the right track here. Jesus and I, you know, we're communicating and, you know, we get each other. And so I just want to be clear on the categories here because, you know, they're neighbors and then they're not neighbors. They're people that fit into another category. Maybe it's enemies or strangers. And so let's just be clear what we're talking about. Who is my neighbor? And interestingly, this is how Jesus often answers spiritual questions, especially from the supposed experts. He would answer with a question. So he, he gives a story and then a question. And he tells a story about a man, presumably Jewish, who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a, a long day's walk. It's probably 17, 18 miles. And it's up and down hills, rocky roads. There are twists and turns, lots of places where robbers could kind of lay in wait and ambush somebody. And that was not at all uncommon. People would like to travel in caravans, or they certainly wouldn't travel after dark. It was just too risky. So this man is traveling, and along the way he's attacked and beaten by robbers and left for dead on the road. And then Jesus says, and by chance, you know, almost coincidentally, or like the wording that he uses is like, and good fortune is coming right around the corner, and a priest comes down the road. And you can almost see the wheels turning in the mind of this religious expert. Yes, finally a story where the priest, the religious guy, is the hero. There's just not many movies like that. There are not many TV shows where the religious guy is the hero. Usually they're the idiots, or they're the psychopath, or they're... You know, the creepy guy that, you know, doesn't quite understand how the world really works. So imagine this expert's dismay when Jesus says the, the priest sees the man by the side of the road and he crosses to the other side of the road and goes right by him and continues on his way. What? And Jesus says, but then a Levite comes walking down the road. And the Levites were the religious workers. They had descended from the line of Jacob. They were the ones in charge of taking care of the, the temple duties. And they were kind of like, you know, an everyday sort of guy, but a very religious, almost like the priest is the highly paid holy man. Well, then the, the Levite was just kind of like the everyday working class guy, but who worked in the temple. And so, again, maybe there's hope 
you know, in the heart of this religious expert is like, ah, here's the twist. It's not the paid holy guy. It's the everyday guy who really loves God who steps in and rescues this guy. But Jesus says the Levite walks down the road, sees the man beaten and bruised and bleeding, and he crosses to the other side of the road and walks by. I'm not liking this story right now. And he says, then a Samaritan walks down the road. Now, here's the interesting thing. We, because of this very story, we tend to think of a good Samaritan as somebody who helps. They see a need and they help, even though they're a stranger. But in those days, Samaritans were certainly looked down upon by the Jews. They were considered spiritual half-breeds, like mongrels, because they had Jewish background, but they had intermarried with non-Jewish people. And so they were worse than dogs, especially in a religious leader's mindset. Like, this would be, you know, the least likely hero to arise in the story. And a Samaritan comes along, and he sees this man in need, and he actually stops and helps, even though he's Jewish. He stops and helps. He gives him first aid. He comforts him. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to the closest inn, and he stays with him overnight, takes care of him, and he pays the innkeeper for the next week or so just to make sure this guy has a chance to recover. To the religious expert, that's a really unexpected twist. And Jesus wraps the story up by asking, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replies, he doesn't say the Samaritan, he just says the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go do likewise. Let's pray. Father, you know me inside and out, and you know my brokenness and my struggles and my frailty. And that's true of everybody here. You know what we look like on the outside, but you also know what we look on the inside. So I pray that you would help us to be honest this morning before you. And I ask that you would speak through your word um, to change us. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, a parable, as you probably know, it's a, it's a hypothetical story, something that could actually have happened. It may have actually happened, but not necessarily. Uh, so this story Jesus uses to illustrate a much larger spiritual concept. And so some of the truths from this parable is that if you love God with all your heart, it's going to show up in the way that you take care of your neighbors. And your neighbor may not be someone who looks just like you. They may not have the same religious beliefs as you. They may not have the same ethnic or cultural background. It may require you to move outside of your comfort zone. It could be inconvenient for you. It could be costly. It could be messy to love your neighbor. But when we love our neighbor especially those who are distant or disconnected from God, then it honors God, and we grow more like Jesus. So today, we're going to focus in on investing in key relationships outside the church. So last week, we talked about inside the the church, relationships with other believers, and we're shifting gears a little bit this week. If you were to come to Gateway to Gateway in two weeks, which is kind of our workshop for those that want to find out uh, what Gateway is all about, how we're structured, how we make decisions, then you would hear a little bit about healthy spiritual growth. And in that workshop, we would say healthy spiritual growth means moving up towards God in worship, in towards others in authentic Christian community, and out toward the world 
and evangelism and service. So it's kind of like three-dimensional growth. You don't just pick your favorite area. You really want to be growing in all three of these areas. And the outward movement is what we want to talk about this morning. What does loving our neighbor look like in everyday life? Well, in Gateway to Gateway, you would talk about things like growth in an outward spiritual direction includes things like opening our lives to people in need, uplifting God's character, and telling others about Christ. So that's kind of the the general ground that we want to cover this morning. As I was praying about this and and getting ready for this sermon, four words came to mind, and I'm going to kind of use that for my structure this morning. Full disclosure, three of the four concepts came from a guy named Joel Sutherland, who's an outreach specialist for the North American Mission Board. So three-quarters of the sermon is really not mine. I just kind of appropriated his ideas because I thought it was an interesting way of looking at things. And so what I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning is that rightly connecting to key relationships outside the church involves these four things. Seeking, serving, sharing, and storying. Kind of an odd word, but we'll work our way through these. I just wanted to have sort of a roadmap of where we're going. So let's start with seeking. Because rightly connecting to key relationships outside the church involves, first of all, seeking. We've got to be looking, we've got to be searching for opportunities. And it starts with seeking God and praying that he would open up our hearts to recognize those things. It could be starting in the morning and saying, hey God, would you help me to recognize the opportunities you're putting in front of me today? Would you help me not just blow by someone in need in the midst of all of my busy schedule and everything I've got on my agenda? Is there someone you want me to get to know better? Someone you want me to serve or encourage or just... Treat with dignity and respect. You know, maybe it's a cashier who's having a bad day and you want me just to say something kind to them. I don't want to miss out on an encounter you might have in store for me. So we pray. And our starting point is seeking God and asking, hey, let me see what do you want me to do today to love my neighbor. But I think seeking goes beyond that. In Luke 19.10, Jesus is talking about himself when he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This verse comes right after he's had a conversation with a guy named Zacchaeus, who was a very unscrupulous tax collector. Oddly enough, tax collectors back then were not really highly regarded in Jewish culture. Not that much has changed, right? Except back then, he would have worked for the Roman government, which was the occupying force, And the way you made a living as a tax collector was you collected what Caesar demanded and then whatever you could get above and beyond that was kind of like your commission. And you had Roman army guys that were your muscle. So you could kind of put pressure on people and anything you could get over and above what you owed the government, you got to keep. And so a tax collector felt a little bit like a traitor, but they also felt a lot like a loan shark. And so Zacchaeus decides that he's got to see Jesus. He rushes ahead, sees Jesus. Jesus somehow knows what's going on in his heart and says, Zacchaeus, I am coming to your house for lunch today. And Zacchaeus is so overjoyed. He's so excited that there's this chance for some kind of new life because of Jesus. I mean, he's heard about him. We don't have all of the details, but he says, ah, this is awesome. I am so excited about Jesus. I'm going to give half of everything I own to the poor, and I'm going to pay everything back that I ripped off plus extra because I want to make things right. I mean, What a bold statement of faith. It shows up immediately, and it shows up with his money. I mean, that's pretty big. And the people around Zacchaeus are grumbling because they're like, wait, 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 did you? He is going home for lunch with a tax collector. What? 
you know, what's wrong with this guy? And that's where Jesus said, you don't get it? I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. A good shepherd goes after the lost sheep. So here's the thing. If Jesus deliberately pursued people who were far from God, and we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, then we ought to have that same priority. People who are disconnected or distant from God ought to be on our radar. And we ought to place a high value on people who are outside of the kingdom. We need to be proactive with this. Part of seeking means we're actually looking for opportunities. We're looking for relationships. We're looking for people in need. We need to build margin into our schedule and into our finances. We need to carve out time to spend with people who are far from God on their turf. Not necessarily where we're comfortable, but where they're comfortable. We don't want to wait for them to find us. We search for them. We pursue them. Now, here's the thing. We're all busy. I get that. I mean, that's just part of living in Northern Virginia. It's part of our culture. We're busy. If you have teenagers, then you know our teenagers are busy. And I think sometimes we don't necessarily help that. We get them in multiple sports, and they got their five AP classes because we want them to be successful. And in our culture, that's what success looks like. But sometimes we get so busy, and we encourage our kids to get so busy that we don't have the margin to get involved in the lives of people who really need to know Jesus. It's not prioritizing what Jesus really valued. I mean, he only had three years of ministry. He had a lot of ground to cover, but he made time for a Samaritan woman at the well. He made time for a Roman centurion. He made time for little kids to come to him. It feels like most of us, me included, could be more intentional about pursuing relationships with people who are outside the church. We could be praying preparing our hearts, and actively looking for God-ordained opportunities with our neighbors. I'll just give you a, a quick glimpse of what this might look like. There's a guy here at Gateway who makes it kind of like one of his priorities in life to get to know the names of people that he interacts with. So when he goes into Starbucks, he usually goes to the same barista and he calls them by name. And when he goes to the bank, he tries to go to the same cashier because he's trying to build a relationship with them. He's trying to not just see them as somebody that's meeting his needs. He's trying to connect with them. He's intentionally trying to cultivate a relationship, even though it's at a pretty surface level initially. He's trying to get to know them. And it could be something like that for you. But seeking or searching means praying, preparing, and purposefully moving in the direction of people who are distant from God. The second word I want us to think about this morning is serving. If we're going to rightly connect to key relationships outside the church, then it's going to involve serving. Here's another passage where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. So in Matthew chapter 20, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what he's saying is, look, I could have stayed in heaven. I didn't. I, I could have insisted on stepping in humanity in all of my glory and having everybody bow down to me, having armies of angels around me, but I didn't. I came as a servant. I came as a human. And I came to lay down my life for those in need. Because in God's economy, serving is a really big deal. I mean, Jesus said, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, then you have to be the greatest servant. And if Jesus modeled that, and we're trying to line up our lives with his, then serving has to be a huge part 
of who we are. And it's, it's not just about serving people we know, people we like, people who will serve us back. It's about serving people we don't know, people who are broken, who are hurting. For Jesus, while we were still sinners, separated from God by our own desire to, to live life our own way, Jesus loved us, and he sacrificed himself so that we could be forgiven. And it's that model of sacrifice, of laying our life down, that we're supposed to pursue with people who are far from God. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul echoes this idea. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of the servant. So even though Jesus was fully divine and holy God, he chose not to hang on to that equality with God. He released that, and he stepped out of heaven and into time and space into a very costly role here on earth. And he laid down his life so that if we put our faith in him, we could experience God's grace and forgiveness and have a fresh start with God. So this serving, this is big. This is something we do as a church, and it's something we do as individuals. It could be as small as helping somebody change a flat tire in the parking lot at work or, or making dinner for the family next door where two out of the three kids are sick at the same time. One of our, our middle schoolers was telling me this week that about a time when he was walking into a meeting and the middle school kid in front of him, his backpack like split open and all of his stuff fell out. And everybody was in such a hurry to get by him, they just started laughing and kind of went around him. And, I, and the kid from our youth group got down on his hands and knees and picked that stuff up, stuffed it back in the pack and helped the kid get it back to his locker. And that's the kind of thing that God calls us to do. Sometimes serving can be more challenging because life can be messy and complicated and draining. Even though we're all strugglers to some degree, some people struggle in very big ways. And coming alongside of them, helping to shoulder that load, it can be draining, it can be costly, it can be messy. But it's God-honoring whenever we're willing to come alongside whether we're talking physically, relationally, emotionally, or even financially. So as a church, serving, that's a big deal to us. In a typical budget year where our budget for the last several years has been around 650000 we probably spend in the neighborhood of $100,000 every year on serving people. So some of that goes to missionaries in countries like Zambia where we're trying to resource program that puts orphans into families and teaches them skills and makes sure they have an education. Some of it goes to the Dominican Republic. Some of it goes to Appalachia. And we also spend money on mission trips and helping people at Christmas. And we have a benevolence ministry. And we do things like package meals for people in third world countries, like we did with Stop Hunger Now last October. We do hands-on serving projects. So in three weeks, Super Bowl Sunday, you know, we're doing a food drive for the Dulles South Food Pantry for local people who are hurting and need food. And I'm really excited about an event coming up this May. We're going to be telling you more about this in the, the weeks ahead. But 2016foodfight.com, that's the website you can go to. Uh, we're going to be joining hundreds of other churches and organizations at the Dulles Expo Center packing 5 million meals. So when we did Stop Hunger Now, we packaged, I think it was around 70,000 meals. We're talking about 5 million meals. 
We're renting the Dulles Expo Center for the whole weekend. It'll take 40 tractor trailers just to get the supplies there. 25,000 volunteers. And it'll be the largest meal packaging event in the D.C. area's history. And we get to be a part of that. It's, it's put together by churches, but we're trying to involve the whole community in it. And so I, I wanted you to take a look at this video, just a, a preview of what you can expect. But it's just the kind of thing that serving together can accomplish. Take a look. I got to go to uh, Haiti this summer to kind of see what happens to those meals when they're unloaded at the other end. And it's pretty remarkable how, in Jesus' name, that food resources ministries that are changing kids' lives. All right, so we've talked about seeking and serving. Now let's uh, move on and think about sharing. So rightly connecting the key relationships outside the church is going to involve sharing. And by this I mean sharing our life, building relationships with people outside the church, whether it's neighbors, coworkers, team parents. It could be we have them in our home, we go to their parties, we babysit their kids. We cultivate friendships with them so that we can know them and love them and so we can serve them. But we also want to live in such a way that they can see the difference that God is making in our lives. So a big part of this sharing is letting them see glimpses of God in our own lives. Jesus taught us in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. They can't see our light if we're not hanging out with them. They can't see our light if it's hidden away. So there's no visible difference between the way we live and the way everybody else lives. It would show up in the way we play golf or handle responsibilities or work or parent our kids. There ought to be a difference. It, it should show up in the way we work through marriage conflict or make financial decisions or handle our anger, how we navigate adversity or loss, how we care for the people around us. There ought to be a difference. But another part of sharing is It's often overlooked. It's being open and honest about the areas where we struggle. It's letting other people sort of get a look inside of us where God is doing his best work. I realize that it would be a whole lot more fun to show them areas where like, yes, I've really got this part of my life together, so pay attention to the fact that I'm on time or I'm very successful in my work or whatever. But but I think where people are really curious is where God is at work in the midst of our brokenness, changing us and transforming us little by little from the inside out. But we have to be vulnerable and transparent if that's going to happen. It's less comfortable for us, but probably way more useful to God and to them. So the Apostle Paul captures this idea in his letter to Timothy. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul could have bragged about all he had done for the cause of Christ, for the times he'd been beaten, for all the preaching and the thousands of people who had committed their lives to Jesus, the miracles that he had worked, the churches that he had started. But he points to his failures. He points to his spiritual brokenness and says, you know, if God can work in a messed up, broken man like me, and there's hope for you. So when someone says, gosh, your son's a really talented athlete, you can just say, thanks, he gets it from me. Or, you know, 
Maybe that's an opportunity to say, thanks, we're really grateful that we still have a solid relationship with him. We pray for him a lot, you know, or, or we pray about that. Or when a coworker says, hey, you look really stressed out, we can scream at them if we want, you know, and kind of, yes, yes, I'm stressed. Why are you asking me about that? Or we could say, yep, yeah, you know, you're right. I'm trying to get a handle on that. God is kind of working on me, but I just have a really hard time when, when I feel like things are out of my control. There are ways that we can give them glimpses of God at work in us, and sometimes those glimpses might lead to longer conversations. That kind of honesty is much more appealing than acting like a Christian who has it all together. Could you put into everyday language what God has been teaching you lately? What has he been saying to you through your kids or through your spouse? Where has he been poking at you to say, you need to work on this area? This is an area where you need to be more like me and less like you. Where is he challenging you to change or confronting you with your own brokenness? If this is an area where you, you know, don't really have a clue on, on how to get started with that, small group is a great place because I think it's in that community that you can find other people who are willing to share about their brokenness and who, instead of making fun of you when you say, well, I'm you know, really messed up in this area, You'll usually get other people going like, yeah, me too. I'll pray for you, you pray for me. There's support and encouragement. And it's pretty encouraging when you can see how it works and how natural it can be. All right, the last word that we're going to look at this morning is an odd one. I get that. It's storying, which is not one that we were ever taught in school because probably only in the last five years has it come into use. I've heard it in connection with church life over the last several years, but I think it's also used in literary circles. The idea in terms of investing in key relationships outside the church, you might define it as the art of getting to know the stories of other people and letting them know your story. And whenever you have the opportunity, you're pointing them toward God's story. So Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Okay, So it's kind of talking about what's going on with you, but I think in our world we often have to know somebody else's story before we're going to have the freedom to share with them our story. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Religious, non-religious, meticulous, moralist, loose-living, immoralist, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. But I entered their world and I tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all of this because of the message. So Paul is saying, I'm, I'm trying to connect to all kinds of people. I'm trying to understand their perspective while not wavering in my own faith. I'm trying to find ways to connect with them and communicate the message about Jesus. Storying starts with a desire to get to know another person, to hear their story and to ask questions. And I've got to confess, I am a talker much more naturally than I am a listener. But even somebody like me can learn to ask questions and to listen and to cultivate conversation to respectfully and tactfully begin to understand who the other person is and how they got to this point in life. 
not being fearful over digging deeper, maybe into philosophical questions or religious questions. I have an ongoing dialogue with the woman who cuts my hair, and she is from Vietnam. She's Buddhist in her background, and so uh, it's been interesting to kind of find out her perspective on things. Uh, we talked about my trip to Haiti, and she said, wow, you're a really good guy for going to Haiti and meals and all of that, and I invited her to stop hunger now, and she didn't come, but I'm going to invite her to the food park because I'm trying to get to know her, and I'm trying to let her see some of the stuff that I'm involved in. Storing, somewhere in the process, you know, you realize it's not just a single conversation. It's got to be a dialogue that happens over time. You have to have opportunity to relate to them and to connect with them and to earn credibility with them. And over time, maybe you'll have an opportunity to let them know some of your story, some of the highs and lows, and how you got to where you are today. There may be an opportunity to include spiritual elements. They may ask you questions if you've already primed the pump by asking them questions. And then there's one additional step beyond that. It's not just your story and their story. Ultimately, what you're hoping for and praying about and looking for is an opportunity to share bits and pieces of God's story to help them understand that God loves us and He wants to have a relationship with us because of what Jesus did. We can be forgiven and have a fresh start with God. Hopefully, we're active enough in our relationship with Christ that we have something to tell them about. But we also have a, a broader story of God's interaction with humanity, and we can share some of that story with them. When I went to a seminary a long time ago, evangelism was taught as like, okay, you need to present the good news about Jesus, and you may only have a couple of minutes. You, you should be able to do this like on an elevator or sitting next to somebody on a plane flight, and you should just be able to kind of like whip out a napkin and do a little diagram or tell them the four spiritual laws or draw a bridge or, you know, there are different kind of things that we would use sort of like tools. And in theory, that would maybe at least provoke a conversation. Hopefully, they would consider it. And maybe sometimes people just on that first hearing about Jesus would go, yeah, absolutely, I'm in, life-changing decision. Don't know you, we're on a short flight, but yes, I'm in. I mean, it could happen, and, and it does, and I don't mean to make that sound so silly when it wasn't that silly back then, but our culture has moved on. And uh, now, you know, if, if you knocked on somebody's door and said, hey, I'd like to tell you about Jesus, you might as well be saying, I'd like to sell you a new vacuum cleaner, because they're going to close the door in your face nine times out of ten. We need to build relationships, and there needs to be a context of conversation before we ever have the right to share the good news about Christ. And we live in a story-driven culture. The things that people talk about are movies and TV and song. You look at the Super Bowl ads, there are some ads for products, and you don't even see the name of the product. It's just a story that grabs your heart. And then at the end, it gives you the name of the advertiser. Here's the deal. We have the best story. We just need to be better storytellers. And it shouldn't surprise us that stories would be such a powerful framework for pointing other people to Jesus. Our staff read through a very thought-provoking book last year called Everyday Church. And in it was a chapter on kind of the changing culture and how we might help connect people to Christ. It was such a weird perspective it was written by two pastors, so, you know, I wasn't, like, skeptical going in or anything, and I'd read maybe six, I think there were six chapters before this, and we had all gotten kind of sucked into the book, but we got to that chapter. And I think it was because of the terminology, it was just like, huh, 
wait, let me read that again. And now I've gone back and you know, read it like a third time and a fourth time. Because it's not the way my brain works, but I think it's the way our culture's brain works. I think it's how most people's brains work. And it's sort of helping think about how the message about Jesus might connect with what somebody is going through in their life today. You know, it's not so much about giving them four spiritual laws or the ABCs or the whatever. It's about hearing their story and being able to connect it to God's redemptive work in the world. And I strongly recommend the book. It's called Everyday Church. It's a subject well worth discussing, well worth digging into, and well worth investing some time because storying, I really think that can make a huge difference in our relationships with people outside the church. So, Four words that I'd, I'd love for you to remember and kind of ponder and think on this week. Seeking, serving, sharing, and storying. A couple of weeks ago, I guess it was maybe in the fall, a former neighbor of mine was back in the neighborhood. He was kind of like doing some last-minute stuff on his house. He had already moved, but just kind of like wrapping up some things. And we had all moved into our homes about the same time 15 years ago. So we've got a lot of history with the neighbors on our block. This guy was in the military, and about the same time we moved in, he was deployed. This was around 2000, and he went to the Middle East. His wife was pregnant with their first child, and they had a, a big dog who needed to be walked every morning. And so our daughter, who was probably about 9 or 10 at the time, got drafted for dog walking duty. And we tried to kind of look after this guy's wife uh, while he was out of town and deployed. And we prayed for him, and he came back, and I remember going over and talking to him. I knocked on his door, and he came out on the front porch, and we sat down and talked for a while. I was just asking him you know, what it was like to be back and you know, what was hard to adjust to. And he got oddly emotional, and he was talking about how like, he walked into his kitchen, and he just would like, stare at the stove because he couldn't remember, like, what do you even do with this? I'm so used to eating out of a, you know, a bag you tear open and stuff in your face and you, know, you just spit out the sand between bites. And it's, you know, he was in such a different place. It was probably 85 degrees and he was wearing a jacket because he was cold because he had been spending so much time in, in the desert. And so I ended that conversation by praying with him and unexpectedly he gave me a hug afterwards and it was really awkward hug, um, partly because, you know, most guys, when you talk to them, don't give you hugs, especially some guy in the military. This is a big guy, and it was uncomfortably long, and so it was like, you know, looking for neighbors walking by, you know, kind of like, okay. So life goes on. He did two more deployments, and great guy. His kids now, we ran into his wife, and his son is like 14 or something. It was like, oh my gosh, who is this, you know? seemed like she was just pregnant, you know? And, and so anyway, while he was packing up a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, I still remember that conversation we had when I got back from the Middle East. And it was obvious it really meant something to him. And I, I did remember it, but it was something that meant an awful lot to him. I don't know where he is spiritually. I don't think he's a believer. But we don't have any idea the impact that that type of conversation can have with somebody. And when we're looking for opportunities, we're sharing our life with the people in our neighborhood, even with people that don't look like us, when we're serving, 
we're sharing stories with them. And that's the environment in which God can work. That's where loving our neighbor can make an eternal difference. So I'm going to ask you to pray. Would you bow your heads? And I want you to just take a couple of minutes and we'll do this in silence because I'd like for you to, to just talk with God. Father, would you please speak to each one of us individually? I pray that you would, I don't know, maybe bring people to mind that you want us to pursue. Or talk to us about opportunities to serve or to share our life with the people that are, are in our lives but outside of our church family. Just speak in these moments of silence. Jesus, thank you so much that you stepped out of eternity and into time and space and you walked among us. And you not only taught us about God's love for us, but you demonstrated it. Thank you for your grace, which is greater than our sin. I just pray that your desire to love and to know people who are distant or disconnected from you. Would you put that on our priority list? Would you make us people who follow your lead and who invest willingly and wholeheartedly in loving and serving the people that are outside of the church? May we keep on doing the work that you've started. Seeking and serving and sharing and storying so that more and more people come to know you so that your name is made great, so that your kingdom comes and the things that you value are valued here among us. You thought of us. You thought of us before the world began to breathe. And you knew our names before we came to be. You saw the very day we'd fall away from you. And how desperately we need to be redeemed. Lord Jesus, 
So the world may know you reign. 